Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. I was born in a small town, and I can breathe in a small town. On this edition of The Big Interview, the small town, big time rocker, John Mellencamp. Hey, John, how are you? How you been? Good to see you again. Thanks so much for doing this, man. It's my pleasure. Come in and sit down. And everything looks so cold. When you're walking down on the streets And the wind catches your feet Sets you fly With a career spanning more than four decades, John Mellencamp has sold over 40 million albums worldwide. Little Diddy about Jack and Diane, two American kids growing up in the heartland. He has been nominated for 14 Grammys, and in 2008, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's a black man with black hair, black John Mellencamp is heralded for his poignant observational storytelling. He is perhaps best known for the songs that capture the heart and soul of small-town life and his beloved Indiana. Mellencamp was born in Seymour, Indiana in 1951, the second of five children. When he was 21 years old, he packed his bags and left for New York City to pursue his passion for music. He was soon signed by a big-name music manager. Only he was told he would have to record under the stage name Johnny Cougar. By 1982, his album, American Food, became the top-selling album of that year. And the song, Hurt So Good, won him a Grammy. Since then, John Mellencamp has released nearly two dozen hit records. And he no longer answers to the name Cougar. Easy targets all along the avenue. Mellencamp's latest album, 2017's critically acclaimed Sad Clowns and Hillbillies, has been called a contemporary masterpiece. And this year, he'll be honored by the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Broken heart. 
I caught up with John Mellencamp in New York, where he has an art exhibit opening soon. John, good to see you again. Good to be here. Tell me where we are here. We're surrounded by your artwork, which I want to talk to you about, but where are we? We are at ACA Galleries in uh, New York City. Well, tell me about your painting. I mean, everybody knows your music, but not everybody knows about your painting. Well, actually, uh, <clears throat> I came to New York uh, when I was 20, 21 maybe, to get into, to look into the New York Art Student League. And uh, while I was here, I got a record deal. <laughs> so, you know, it really wasn't my first choice to get, but I was a barroom singer when I was in college and in high school, and, and uh, I'd make money on the weekends by singing cover songs in bars. And, but I really wanted to be a painter. As it turns out, Dan, the record companies wanted to give me money, and the New York Art Student League wanted me to pay money. <laughs> Made so, it a pretty easy choice. Yeah, the, the, the choice became pretty easy. <laughs> Wait a minute, you guys want to pay me money? Okay, yeah, I'll take that job. Uh, but about 1980, I don't know, 5, 86, I started, you know, painting a lot more than I had. Well. All of these your paintings, are they not? Yeah, yeah. Well, briefly, just turn around and tell me a little bit about this one behind you. Um, you know, it's really hard for me to discuss paintings. Mm -hmm. I think paintings, like songs, uh, should surprise the creator. If I write a song that surprises me, my assumption is, is that it's going to surprise the listener. If I do a painting, whenever I walk up and, and say, this is exactly what I want to paint, and this is how I want to paint it, and this is my objective, the painting always turns out no good. And the same with the songwriting. If I say I'm going to write a song, and this is what it's going to be about, let's say I want to write a political, I'm going to write a political song, right. it always turns out not good. But if I let the magic, the muse whoever come through me and stay out just get out of the way then i like the results and the results are always the same for the music and the paintings is it beautiful i don't care if it's grotesquely beautiful but is it beautiful is it, i don't care if it's technically right not technically right but do i think it's beautiful right and then if i think it is then my assumption and hope is is that maybe somebody else would, but at the bottom of it all, I don't really care. Literally, Dan, I have hundreds of paintings. Hundreds. I mean, I think an artist should create something every day, should make something every day. I make something every day, and days that I don't. If I go too long without uh, making things, I get really cranky. Are you by nature a cranky person? Oh yeah, I'm a curmudgeon, yeah. No doubt about it, I've always been a curmudgeon. I've always, I've always felt like I'm living on borrowed time. Um, I was born with spina bifida in 1951, which means I had a hole in my spine. And there were four other kids at Riley Hospital uh, who had the same thing. In 1951, they just let kids with spina bifida die. 
you know, you just they would just lay there and they would eventually right. die. And there was a young doctor, his doctor, his name was Heinberger, and he decided, he said, we just can't let these kids lay here. Let's try something. And he tried to, uh, he tried these, these operations, depending on the kids, where the hole in the spine was. Mine was right here on the back of my neck, and it was the size of a man's fist on a baby's neck, where all the stuff is. And of the four kids that he operated on, I was the only one that lived. And when the operation was done, they, my parents were young, 21, they yeah. said, okay, uh, you can take him home if you want to, but he probably is not gonna live very long. And you know, I've never had one problem at all with my neck or wow. spina bifida. I played football, ran track, got in a lot of street fights. I was in a bar band. Uh, I've done all that stuff and it's never been a problem. And so I've always looked at my time as I'm on borrowed time anyway, because I should have died in 1951 and here I am still alive at 66. I'm still painting, I'm still pretty healthy, uh, still playing shows, still writing songs. And so uh, I'm always in a hurry. When we come back, John Mellencamp dishes about his seminal Little Pink Houses album with Dan Rather on The Big Interview. Welcome back to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Let's continue with today's guest, John Mellencamp. Oh yeah, life goes on, long after the spirit one of John Mellencamp's first big hits was 1982's Jack and Diane, a song detailing life in small-town America. The song spent four weeks at number one. His 1985 album, Scarecrow, continued to explore stories of the working class, including the plight of the American farmer, giving a voice to those who felt marginalized or misunderstood. All they want is cheap food, which I can see that. They don't take the farmer into consideration at all. It was an issue Mellencamp did more than just sing about. I've had people call me up and want me to loan them money. Guys that have lived in Indiana for 30, 40 years. And it's like, what is this? Rain on the blood on the In 1985, Mellencamp co-founded Farm Aid, alongside fellow musicians Willie Nelson and Neil Young. Since 1985, Farm Aid has become a nonprofit, raising over $50 million for American farmers and their families. A lot of people uh, who admire your sound and they talk about your sound, they analyze it. Some wind up calling it Heartland Rock. Is that what you call it? That's a bullshit name. Uh, has nothing to do with the Heartland, has nothing to do with rock. I mean, that's just, you know, there were a bunch of rock critics in the 70s and, and the 80s who uh, set themselves up as uh, judge and jury, and they had magazines like called Rolling Stone, and these guys acted as if they knew something that the rest of us didn't know. Uh, and I always resented that. 
that there was this elitist bunch of people uh, who uh, would review these records. I would read reviews of, you know, uh, these great records like, you know, uh, I remember reading the first review of uh, Led Zeppelin. Rolling Stone just tore them apart. Said they were a shit band and they, you know, they were just a cheap imitation of this other band and, you know, and it was just, it was too, too much, too much of that. And uh, so I, uh, I learned a lot from some rock critics. I had my, one of my best friends was the editor of uh, Billboard magazine and Rolling Stone. Oddly enough, for a while he died. Uh, but I learned a lot from him and a couple of his friends and a couple of the guys, but most of them, bullshit. Yeah. Oh, but you do sing about small town life. I have. John Steinbeckian kind of characters, if you will. And you tell us stories. What stories are you trying to tell? I'm not really trying to tell anything. I'm trying to, um, you know, if you want to tell a story, then tell a small one. Tell a small story. Something that doesn't really include me. I may say I in the song, but I'm not talking about me. I'm not that interesting of a guy. You know, I've got 500 songs published. I'm not interesting enough to have 500 songs written about myself. You know, I don't know anybody that is. Uh, so, you know, you kind of, you know, I'm, I view life. I'm, I'm always watching people. I'm always making up a scenario about people that I see on the street. I make up a scenario about you. I, you know, uh, anybody that I come in contact with, I wonder what this guy really, you know. Yeah. So I'm always looking at, you know. You never really know anybody except their shadow self. Yeah. You're known for writing songs that resonate with what some people call, quote, conservative America, or reactionary America, people on the right-hand side of the political spectrum. But were you ever worried that your lyrics or the songs might cost you something in the marketplace, or did you ever think about that? I am the most liberal person you know. I told Obama to his face, uh, I said, man, you're just not liberal enough for me. And this is when he was uh, running for the first time uh, in, uh, I think it was in Boston. They had the Democratic National Convention, and I played at the, the convention. I remember that. And he gave that great speech, and yeah. I was talking to him, and I just said, hey, man, you're just not liberal enough. And, uh, you know, so if I am relating to conservative listeners, they're not listening to the song. You know, if, if, if your goal is to be as big and as popular and as famous as you can be, then you're in a different business than I'm in. That's not my goal. Now, I have, as I will quote my girlfriend, who said to me, John, we've already both been to the moon. We don't need to go there again. And she was right. I've been to the moon, and I found a bunch of deadbeats up there. I don't need to go back. By the way, I know how... You value your privacy, right. and I want to be very respectful. But when you say you talked about your lady, uh, you talk about Meg Ryan. Right. How's that working out? 
I don't know how she tolerates me. Neither do I. <laughs> I, don't she, she, I don't know how she does it. She's got a really thick skin. <laughs> that's all I All right, she feels sorry for me most of the time. I think that's, I think that's basically that she feels sorry for me. She goes, poor John thinks he knows what he's talking about, but I'll just let him talk. Just let him talk himself out. Yeah. He'll go to sleep in a little bit. But I take your point, I want to come back to it, that you think one, one of the reasons you get along is because she reminded you she's been to the moon, and right. you've been to the moon, which is to say you've been way up there and out there right. for a long time and many times. And it's worth remembering since you've been there that you can just be yourself now. Yeah. Yeah, at a, cer at a certain point you realize that that's not really the victory uh, of life at all. I want to go back to something else you said earlier. You said that you like to be alone, and particularly you paint alone. You really take yourself off alone. What do you think that's about? Being alone? Yeah. Um, liking to be alone. I like to be alone. I like to be alone. I like to be left alone. I don't, um, like, I directed a movie once. I can't do that. There's too much input, too much stuff I don't want to hear. Too many other people. Uh, yeah, just too, too many ideas. Not that they were bad ideas, it's just they just didn't filter through. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being in a rock band, I found out real young that I wasn't going to be in a band where everybody had equal decisions. I was going to be in my band, and I hate to be crude, but here was what I used to say. to When I was a young guy, I would look at guys who would come into me in my band, and I would go, look, there's only room for one asshole here, and you're looking at him. So if you have any idea that you're going to come in, and this is my band, and this is how it operates. And I've had the same band members, some of them for 45 years. Wow. So um, being very strict about setting up the rules real quick, everybody knows what the rules are. And uh, it turns out you end up having loyal people. I have, you know, some guys have been in the band 30 years, some have been 45, some have been in 20. If you have competition inside a band, one guy competing, that's my idea, and this is my idea, and I created this, and I... Then you have trouble. There's only one guy that creates anything in my band. That's me. That's not true, but everybody... So everybody just lets go of that ego. Okay. Everybody just lets go of, like, John's name's going to be on the record, so if we make something up, it better be damn good, or he's going to come after us and blame us, you know? So, you know, they're very careful. Uh, Bob Dylan wrote a song once, and it said, know your song well before you start singing. And I think those are good words to live by, and I've always told my guys and my band, you got a suggestion? Know your words well before you come to, to me with the idea. Yeah. Well, speaking of words to live by, I want to quote, keep it small. Remember, always keep it small but keep it going, unquote. That's from you. What does this phrase mean to you? That phrase was taught to me at Madison Square Garden. There was a huge show 
and it was to honor Pete Seeger. And I was standing there with Pete, and I had met Pete numerous times, and I said, so Pete, what do you think? He goes, well, this is all right every once in a while. But he, he, he goes, if you want to know the secret, keep it small and keep it going. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, he said, when the Iraq war started, all these people migrated to New York to, and Washington, D.C. to protest the Iraq war. He said, I made a sign, walked out on the interstate by myself, and held the sign up. And he said, I got all the coverage. He said, I didn't do it for coverage. I did it to protest. But it was just so odd, he said, that there was a single man standing there, an old man holding a sign up on the interstate by himself. Keep it small. Always keep it small, but keep it going. Keep it going. Keep, keep, keep it going. And, you know, and then, and then Dylan has told me pretty much the same thing. He said, John, go where they're not. In other words, if, they're, if, they're, if there's a whole bunch of guys doing this, go someplace else. Don't go there. Because, you know, they got enough guys doing that. Right. So don't follow suit, in other words. Don't fall in line. Well, Which no is, one could ever accuse you of falling in line and falling suit. Well, I learned my lesson early, you know, uh, when they changed my name when I was 22 years old, uh, and I hated it. And, you know, it's dogged me for the last 45 years. We talk about the name Johnny Cougar. Right. Uh, so when that, when that happened, I realized at that point, that's the last time that's ever going to happen. Well, let me go to that for a minute. What was it? Your handlers, your agent, record company said, listen, your name is, what, too German in heritage? Mm -hmm. So you need a, a more all-American name. Well, they, they, they thought, you know, they looked at my personality, and at, at the time I was young and very aggressive, and I think that's where the name came from. Nobody ever called me Johnny my whole life, and, and you know, Cougar was just like, it was like, I looked at the people and said, I'm not going to do that. Well, it could have been tigers. Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, but even those are, like, ridiculous. And the only way I justified it in my head, being a 21-year-old guy, I thought, well, is any more ridiculous than the Beatles? <laughs> you know. Point. You know, is it any more ridiculous than the Beatles? I mean, you know, that's a stupid name. Uh Cougar can't be any stupider than that, but it turned out it was. But you bought into it for a while. I didn't buy, I never bought into it. I went along with it because uh, it came down to I made my first record, and uh, I didn't know they were changing my name until I saw the album cover, and there it was on the album cover, and I went, I I'm not doing that, and they go, hey, you don't have to, you can go home. You can go back to Dan. I was here in New York. Right. And uh, so the choice was either you put it out or Get the hell out. Now, if I'd have kept that name, you and I wouldn't be talking. You know, there were certain things back then, if you wanted to even be, be taken remotely seriously in the rock world, you know, back when it meant something, when people, it was their lives, yeah. uh, that you just didn't do. You know, I'm sure there's things in your profession that you just didn't do. You bet. You know, lines you just couldn't cross. Yeah. And having a name like Johnny Cougar was one of them.
Dan Rather's big interview with Farmaid's co-founder John Mellencamp continues in just a moment. Welcome back to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Let's continue with today's guest, John Mellencamp. Your music and your general persona went through a what I would call a transformation with your album, Scarecrow. A lot of fans consider that to be the second act that made you, if you will. Do you? I know a lot of people think that. And uh, if you look at most recording artists' career, um, there's a section of time that they become very popular during that section of time. And at, after that time passes, if you have a long career, Everybody says, oh, that's when he was the best. Right. He was the best, but that's not really true. What's really true is, is that that's when you were the most popular. Yeah. The most popular and being the best at your craft are two different things. You know, uh, I would say, you know, uh, for me, uh, my last couple of records are my best records. Why? I have more knowledge. I, I, uh, I know what I'm talking about a lot more uh, than I did then. I have a muse that sends me stuff. Uh, I didn't have any of that stuff back then. I was just a kid trying to, you know, copy, uh, you know, uh, Faulkner. H how do I become the Faulkner of rock music? How do maybe I maybe Tennessee Williams. How do I become the Tennessee Williams of, of rock music? That was always more of my inspiration than, you know, some of the rock band. And from where did that come? Did you read Faulkner or Tennessee Williams when you were younger? Did you know their work? I, uh, my parents were uh, only 20 years older than me. So they basically were kids. So I grew up with hearing uh, Woody Guthrie. Uh, my mother was uh, a painter and considered herself... I even hate to say this, an intellectual. Uh, she considered herself that. She thought she was smart. <laughs> anyway, she uh, made no uh, bones about, uh, you need to know this. You need to know about Faulkner. You need to know, you, about, you need to know about this. And I had an older brother who was a very talented uh, singer and actor. And so in high school and in college, Whenever he was in dramatics club, he got all the lead parts. So being his younger brother, I was either forced or volunteered to go see my older brother do Kids Met, you know. So uh, I was exposed to a lot of theater, even though it was local in high school <laughs> and college uh, at a very young age. And I liked it. Well... I hope you won't take offense at this because it was said as a compliment whether you take it that way or not. Someone suggested that, yes, maybe Faulkner, maybe Tennessee Williams has an echo in your music, but maybe it's a little closer to Erskine Caldwell, you know, wrote, well, less intellectual novels about the Deep South, but about poor down and out people. 
Did you ever hear of Erskine Caldwell? Yes. Yeah. I tried to write, a, um, I can't say that anymore. Whoever sends me these songs are telling me to write about people whose voices are maybe not as loud as other voices. I wrote a song called uh, Easy Targets not too long ago, and it just proved to me that uh, people don't want to hear uh, folk songs that are speaking what I would call the truth. Because Easy Targets was about, you know, uh, uh, there's a line in it that says, um, I'm not very good at quoting myself, but it says, uh, uh, black lives matter. Who are we trying to kid? Their lives don't matter, never have, never did. They're just easy targets all along the avenue. Powerful lyrics. Truthful. Well, I've I written down a few songs, John, and we've discussed some of them, but I'll make sure I give you an opportunity. Just sort of tell me how these songs came about. I Need a Lover. When, 1979, was it? 1970, I wrote it in 1978. Uh, that song uh, has a real long intro. I don't know if you know that or not, but the original song, and we were so young and so immature and uh, so novice at being musicians that we didn't know about key changes. I didn't know about you could change keys and play the same progression. So once I discovered that, it was like, oh, well, that's great. Let's play this many measures, and then we'll change keys, and it'll go up, and it'll go up, and then it'll come back down when I come and sing it. <laughs> Makes it all the more impressive how well it did. Yeah, thank God for Pat Benatar, right? She made it a hit. <laughs> Small town out of Scarecrow in 1985. There's a funny story about that. I used to always type my lyrics. I would handwrite them and then I would type them and then I would correct, you know, things when I was typing. I can't spell. So it was impossible uh, for anybody to read my lyrics except me because uh, I have dyslexia and I can't spell. Uh, I was given a typewriter that had a spell correct on it, that had a little computer chip in it, and that whenever you misspelled a word, it would beep at you. Of course, it wouldn't correct the spelling. It just identified the fact that you had misspelled a word. Well, it must have driven you crazy going <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. I was sitting downstairs typing out small town, ding, 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 ding. And the woman, that my aunt who worked for me, uh, she was, I heard her upstairs laughing. And I walked upstairs and uh, <laughs> I said, and I, I was teasing her, I go, I go, what do you think is so damn funny? She goes, that spell thing's really working for you. I go, yeah, but listen to this. Dun, 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 dun. And I played her small town, and she just went, wow. Well, it didn't work out all that bad, and I find it a very inspiring story, really, that you had dyslexia, because there are a lot of kids who have it, and they get discouraged. But you had dyslexia, have it, and yet became what you are today. Well, um, yeah, d dyslexia is, uh, what it does, it makes you create ways of, of trying to understand and getting around 
the normal system. So, because you, the normal way doesn't work for you. In uh, junior high is when I knew something was wrong because I couldn't read off the blackboard. And, and uh, my older brother was a straight A student and my grades were just horrific. You know, if, if I got two Ds, two Cs and an F, my parents were rejoicing, <laughs> you know, because it was like, well, at least he didn't flunk everything, yeah. you know. But it's like I couldn't read. Then when I went to college, I actually, Dan, I actually took a, a test where they evaluated your reading. Right. I was in college and I was reading at sixth grade, third month level. Wow. So how'd you get around that? I don't want to dwell on this, but I'm interested. How'd you get around that? Did you pay more attention and lectures? I think that uh, it makes you a better listener. Interesting. So even though I may not seem like it, I am a very good listener, uh, particularly when I hear something worth listening to. take a quick break but when we return Dan Rather wraps up his big interview with John Mellencamp and we're back let's close out today's big interview with John Mellencamp and now Dan Rather John Mellencamp has always been outspoken and a bit of a rebel. So let the poor be damned and the easy targets too. We're all created equal, equally beneath me and you. His latest album features the politically charged single, Easy Target, which he released on the eve of President Trump's inauguration. Just You know, it occurs to me, John, as I hear you talk, that what I'm looking at is a prime survivor. You had this spinal bifida as a child, dyslexia, and you had a heart attack. When was that? About 1993, 94? 94, 1994. You had a heart attack. You came back from that. How did you manage that? Well, having a heart attack is not fun. I mean, I'm telling you, it changes your life. For the first few years after that heart attack, I was afraid to do anything. I mean, I just stayed home for two or three years. Uh, my career was at its top, and I never went to play. I didn't do any shows. I didn't make any records. So I was at the top of my career, and I just quit because, you know, I didn't think about heart disease at that time. And so... Uh, I just uh, thought I was dying. It's a matter of time. I'm just waiting to die here because I have heart disease. And uh, consequently, uh, I learned more about it and then I was able to move on. But, you know, and, but even to this day, it, it, still, it still haunts you. You know, when you have heart disease, you know you have it. And it's always there. It's always, it's, it's always like a, you know, it's always like a little ticking time bomb. But 
Give me a few hints. Did, did you begin to work out physically oh, yeah. after a period of time? Mm -hmm. Watch your meds, watch what you eat, that sort of thing? Yeah, I was uh, strictly, uh, I have, I, I'm not a big advocate of uh, any medicine at all. Uh, back then, uh, I didn't even take aspirin, even if I had a headache. So when doctors would say to me, hey, John, your cholesterol is off the charts, I would go, am I all right now? And they'd go, yeah, you're all right now. Right. And they said, well, you need to get on statin drugs. And I'd go, mm, I'm not on the statin drugs. But if I had listened to the doctors, I probably never would have had a heart attack. But those whole cards out, you still smoke too much, don't you? Can you do that? You tell me. Can you smoke too much? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, um, smoking is a, a terrible thing. It is. It's a terrible thing. Uh, but as I jokingly say, it's the only thing I do well. Let's not fuck with it, okay? <laughs> well, I'm laughing, but it's not a funny thing. I, where I was going with that, do you or do you not think it has affected your voice quality? Yeah, my voice has got better. Uh, I hate to say that, but I've always wanted to sound uh, uh, black. And my voice has roughed up quite a bit from cigarettes. And uh, I don't think that would have happened without it. If you listen to my more recent records that have come out in the last few years, uh, there's a big difference in my voice quality. I think it's richer. I think it's uh, uh, more in tune uh, than when I was a kid. Um, but then again, that could be because I got out of my own way. I'm not trying to oversell singing, you know. So you think it sort of gives you, what shall I call it, a kind of Louis Armstrong quality? It's funny you should say that because on my last album, which came out about, I don't know, a year ago, there was a song and I said, who do I sound like? And my engineer goes, you sound just like Louis Armstrong. And I said, really, you think? So we took the song we were working on and we queued up, what's that song? What is that? And you say to yourself, what a wonderful world. So we played that, and my song was in the same tempo and the same key. Wow. So we were able to go, Armstrong, me. We're in the same key, and the voice timbre was exactly the same. Well, would you take offense if someone called you the white man's Louis Armstrong? No, I would, uh, I would go like this. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> You've said that Pink Houses really was the beginning of your prime as a songwriter. Have you developed since then, or do you still consider it to have been your prime? Oh, I'm, uh, I must have said that a long time ago. Because <laughs> I think the songs I write now are a lot deeper, uh, a lot prettier, and uh, 
it's not so much what you say in a song, it's what's being read between the lines. It's like these paintings. You know, you can ask me about the paintings, what does this mean? It's not so much what's on the canvas, it's what's in between the canvas and what you think. What, you know, if it doesn't surprise you, if it doesn't surprise me, then it's no good. If that makes you think of anything, even if the words use people makes you think for a second, then to me that's a good painting. Just that much thought. It doesn't have to be like, oh, what is all that? And I don't really think it's, um, I don't think it's right uh, ever to ask the artist what he was thinking when he did it. Uh, I quit doing that. I quit. I got out of my own way. Well, what's next for you, John? You, you stay busy. I know that you have this DVD Blu-ray release in May. You got a lot coming up? I have an art show here at the ACA. I have a tour coming up. And I'm in the very beginning phases of mounting uh, Jack and Diane as a Broadway show. Well, tell me about that, or can you? It will not be what people expect. That, that's what I can tell you. Well, with John Mellencamp, I wouldn't expect it to be what people expect. <laughs> you know, you've been very generous with your time, and we're going to end here. But I can't resist asking you, as I, I do, who are you, John? I mean, down deep in your id, who are you? Um, well, that's a, a. I wrote a song once, and I it said, and 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 for that one moment, I saw myself who I really was. And I wasn't the fellow that I thought I'd be. As I was walking down the road, and later on in the song, that when you got to the end of the road you found honesty and peace and freedom. So, I, I don't know. I don't know, Dan. No, oh, but that's telling because what you're trying to be. Well, you know, songwriters or artists, a true artist, paints or writes to what he strives to be, not who he is. John, thank you very much. Thank I you. I really appreciate it. You've been great. Thank Thanks you. so much. Thank you, sir. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that concludes another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media, where we share behind-the-scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing.